as Black as Resistance is an expansion of Zoe and William C. Anderson's essay, The Anarchism of Blackness, in which they make the case for a new program of transformative politics for black Americans, one rooted in an anarchistic framework likened to the black experience itself. Zoe Samudzi is a doctoral student in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco, a photographer and a columnist at Broadly, as well as a freelance writer. We're delighted to have Zoe Samudzi with us tonight. Please join me in giving her a warm welcome. Hi, thank you everyone for coming. There's a couple of seats in the front if folks wanna come and sit down. Um, let's see, so I guess I'll start by sharing a little a little bit about how the project, the book project, came about. Um, as with most people that I have, I meet these days, I met William on Twitter, <laughs> and I think I had read something that he'd written that I thought was really, really dope, and we started talking about wanting to write something about black leftism because we were so dissatisfied with a lot of the left writing that we see in mainstream spaces. Um, or main, like bigger left spaces. And so for like two years, we talked about how we wanted to write stuff together and never did, obviously. And then there was an opportunity to write something for Roar Magazine, which was the, um, what is it, the Anarchism of Blackness. And Jerome gave us a week. So we did in the week what we were supposed to have been doing over the span of like two years. And that piece spread in a way that neither of us were really anticipating it spreading. Um, there were people all across the left who were sharing it, like left of like like demo like solid like Democrat voters were sharing it, and then like commies were sharing it, and then like anarchists were sharing it. So then I got really worried, right? Because I was like, if everyone likes it, then I feel like maybe we don't have <laughs> we're like not doing it right. Um, there's like not enough people mad about it, so like what are we doing wrong? Um, but I think it really spoke to the fact that it resonated because people are looking for something that's different. People are looking outside of electoralism, they're looking outside of the kind of stale um, leftist platitudes that are being sold. Um, and so um, I guess in that way I'm happy to like try to fill that void as much as possible. But basically AK Press reached out and they're like, do you want to write a book? And I was like, oh, that sounds fake. But William was like, yeah, let's write a book. And I was like, all right. Um, I would not recommend writing a book while you're doing a PhD. Um, that's a really bad idea. Um, and I was fortunate to have like a really patient co-writer, co-author to like make me meet deadlines and like tell me to stop crying and shit. Um, Yes, extremely. Um, so I think the way that I'm going to do this is like read a couple of the sections that I think are the most important for me personally. Um, the book is split up into, we kind of tackle two main issues. We, talk, we tackle the issue of land and we tackle the issue of self-defense because land and self-defense are, I think, the two defining characteristics of the way that a people are able to assert and, and defend and, um, their sovereignty. Um, that land is kind of this bounded territory for a people 
that self-defense is the means through which that territory is protected. Um, so I'm going to start with the kind of theoretical foundation of the thing. Um, okay, I'm just going to start reading. Okay. The American Empire has caused trauma uh, endlessly from the moment it first existed. Frederick Douglass asserted, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants brass fronted impudence. Your shout of liberty and equality hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. You must expand the scope of Douglas's question beyond celebrations of national independence. We who rightly take issue with the national project must also ask, is the American Revolution the singular, purposefully romanticized tale of wealthy landowners refusing taxation and splitting from the British crown? That's obviously, yes, a loaded question. Or is there another potential American Revolution that has yet to occur? It's deeply ironic that we're taught the glories of the U.S. birth through revolutionary resistance to the British Empire, but told today we must not resist, must not be revolutionary, and need to resolve differences through reasoned dialogue and civic engagement. Equating a revolt to escape unfair monarchical taxes to real revolution is a perversion of the concept of revolution itself. How revolutionary were men who saw no problems with enslavement and citizenship based on white manhood and land ownership? This revolution served white supremacist patriotism and the suppression of dissent. Revolt is at the foundation of the United States, yet now patience and cooperation are presented as the only acceptable ways to address inequity. The very ideals of the foundation of the state are denounced while the state itself monopolizes the right to legitimate revolutionary change, just as it monopolizes the right to legitimate uses of force and self-defense. After all, the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that, and this is in italics, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Black people entered the settler colony through transatlantic kidnapping, chattel trade, and forced servitude. Indigenous genocide and land expropriation are intrinsic to American settlement. And the use of black labor was responsible for settler agricultural expansion and the growth, and the growth of the southern agrarian economy. Once successfully cleared and claimed by white settlers, quote, native land would be mixed with black labor to produce cotton, the white gold of the deep south. And it is through this institution of slavery that black people entered the American social contract. 
Slavery, forced servitude, was imposed upon black people throughout the United States, and blackness thus became a marker of that enslavement that would continue even after the institution's demise. Race in the United States evolved not only as a social identity, but as a property relation, which was codified in the American legal system and within the social contract itself. Inherent to liberal social contract values is the simultaneous maintenance of white supremacy's capital interests and the purported values of, of equality. Liberalism pays lip service to egalitarianism while complementing and lending itself to fascistic logics and political encroachment. Societal fascism describes the process and political logics of state formation where entire populations are excluded or ejected from the social contract. They are pre-contractually excluded because they have never been a part of a social contract and never will be, or they're rejected from a contract they were previously a part of and are only able to enjoy conditional inclusion at best. This differs from the political fascism represented, for example, by the regi regimes of Mussolini, Franco, Hitler, and others. It nevertheless lends itself to the formation of a political system easily susceptible to authoritarianism because it is grounded in inequity and inequality and marked by political mechanisms and popular consensus that allow rights and liberties to legally be taken away in the event that individuals and communities are ejected from the social contract. Black Americans are residents of a settler colony, not citizens of the United States. And despite a constitution laden with European Enlightenment values and a document of independence declaring inalienable rights, black existence was legally that of private property until post-bellum emancipation. The black American condition today is an evolved condition directly connected to this history of slavery, and that will continue to be the case as long as the United States remains an ongoing settler project. As Hortense Spillers makes explicit in her influential work, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, Blackness was indelibly marked and transformed through the transatlantic slave trade. European colonialism and the process of African enslavement can be regarded as high crimes against the flesh, as the person of African females and males registered the wounding. Crimes against the flesh are not simply crimes against the corporal self. The wounded flesh, rather, was the personhood and social position of the African. The wounding is the process of blackening through subjugation, a wound from which black people and blackness writ large have yet to recover. Recovery, a positive reassertion of identity, is impossible. We are black because we are oppressed by the state, and we are oppressed by the state because we are black. Black existence within the social contract is existence within a heavily regulated state, a state in which our emancipation from enslavement was not a singular event or a moment of true actualization of freedom, but rather a state-sanctioned transition from forced servitude to anti-black subjection and exclusion. We are carriers of the coveted blue passport still trapped in a zone of citizen non-being, a zone where we are not fully disappeared and eliminated, but where we are still denied the opportunity and ability to self-determine. A state of precarity that only allows for the conditional survival of particular bodies in particular ways. Within this zone, blackness is constantly under surveillance. And this is not simply an allusion to the state's literal surveillance projects. We refer rather to settler colonial arrangements and anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity that co-create the framework for state racial formations. The mechanisms comprising anti-black surveillance were foundational to post-9-11 war on terror securitization of Muslim, immigrant, and refugee communities across the United States. These suspensions of rights and civil liberties in, order, in favor of order are not new. 
They're rather being explicitly applied to other racialized groups, both domestically and in US foreign policy. Where Islamism constitutes the enemy abroad, blackness is the perpetual enemy at home. Islamophobic and anti-black logics become complementary and also inextricably linked where the first Muslims in the United States were enslaved West Africans. What is citizenship within a social contract where our Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial can be suspended in the event of our completely legal but extrajudicial murder by police? Um, so that's kind of the foundation, um, the framework within which we understand black communities. And it's a framework that can be extended to other communities. Um, if we look at, for example, the way that immigrant communities are being securitized, securitized particularly undocumented immigrants, um, we look at the ways that the homeland security apparatus could not exist without um, the system of mass incarceration and racialized criminalizations that was first kind of set into motion by the genocide of indigenous people and then the trafficking and importing of African people to replace them as a labor force when indigenous people were not understood to be a viable labor force anymore. Um, and so when we have our calls and our demands to abolish the institution of ICE, not to, I guess, get rid of it and like make something new that's more humane and in line with American values, whatever that apparently means, we also have to talk about a broader project of the abolition of police and, and broader carceral structures um, because ICE doesn't function by itself, right? It uses the cooperation of local law enforcement. It turns county jails um, into uh, detention centers for immig uh, immigrant folks. We're not only seeing this treatment of undocumented folks, of people who are not allowed to be American, but we also see a threat that's being posed to naturalized citizens through these denaturalization, um, the task force that the, um, that the government is setting up. Um, we're seeing this idea of Americanness as something that is a reward, um, something that is thus conditional. Um, and if there are certain kinds of people that were never intended to be brought into the fray, um, then this kind of conditionality is always going to be dangled in front of them like a carrot, and they're, always, and they're going to be the ones to have these rights and have these privileges of Americanness be taken away. Um, so... Um... Um, so, and so then when I think about black America and I think of indigenous communities and I think of migration, I always think about land and I think about these structures of border imperialism that are created to enforce the boundaries of who is allowed to come where, who is allowed to become what. Um, and I think always about the fact that so much of black identity, um, and I guess I'm kind of speaking from outside the club a little bit, not that I'm not black, but I'm not African-American, like I'm first-generation American. Um, and that was something that was really important for William and I, that we have two very different relationships to blackness as a, he's a black person who is descended from enslaved folks and my parents came to the US in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and so we also have very different relationships to land. Um, and there have been a lot of like black nationalist programs that are like demanding particular access to land, both through through certain kinds of orientations domestically, and then also certain kinds of claims to land and indigeneity on the continent. Um, 
but there are ways of going about relationships to land that mimic settler colonialism, that see this ability to dominate and to claim dominion over space and people as being um, a reparation. Um, and as we were talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates earlier, he continually refers to a particular land project as the pinnacle of, of reparations for black people, and that is a kind of analogy that has been made um, for a long time. And so I'm gonna read a little bit about land and Marcus Garvey um, and black Zionism. Well, he called it black Zionism. I'm not trying to do black Zionism. We don't, we don't do that in this house. <laughs> okay, so I'm starting on page 24. The begin, like the first full paragraph on 24. Much of the identity production of black people in the United States, both from the descendants of enslaved Africans and otherwise, has stemmed from a sense of yearning, an attempt to reconcile a diasporic self with roots and a sense of African groundedness, a sense of home space. Certain strains of black nationalist thought and politics historically, and even presently, have called for black people in America to go back to Africa. This nationalism, driven by logics of land-based reparations for expropriated labor in the US and abduction from the continent, excuse me, voids the sovereignty of African states. Black nationalism in the United States can sometimes entail these quasi-settler claims to land, whether through black Zionist traditions or land-based reparation claims entailing the establishment of a black nation within former Confederate states. Black Zionism evoked the Exodus story of Moses leading the Israelites out of bondage from Egypt and into the Promised Land, a clear analogy to the black diaspora's potential liberation from the subjugation of American white supremacy. Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa politics, for example, emulated the Zionist concept of Aliyah, the return immigration of Jewish refugees in the diaspora to Israel. While a tenant, a tenant of Zionism, it was not established as large scale until the late 19th century, and then on an even greater scale after Israel's creation in 1948. By contrast, Palestinian refugees displaced by the Nakba in 1948 or the Six-Day War in 1967 are not afforded the right of return granted to them under international law. Founded in 1968, the Successionist Republic of New Africa was an organization and social movement founded on the basis of three major goals. Leaders sought the creation of an independent black nation in the southeastern United States, the former Confederate States of America, a nation that would include Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Seven billion dollars in financial reparations to black American descendants of enslaved people, and a nationwide referendum for all African Americans to vote on whether or not they wish to remain US citizens. But more controversial than black secessionism itself is the question of the fate of the Native American communities in those states. Where would their struggle for liberation and autonomous nationhood fit within the Republic of New Africa framework? Would their sovereignty be erased and subsumed? Settler colonialism refers to the process through which an external force colonizes a space through the establishment of permanent settlements with the aim of permanently securing their hold on specific locales through a claim of special sovereign charge or dominion over space. 
The kind of colonialism that marked the majority of the world that w was one that necessitated the existence of indigenous communities for a labor force, among other things. But by contrast, settler colonialism is a far more invasive mode of colonialism that is marked by the dispensability of indigenous communities. It is a project whose dominant feature is not exploitation, but replacement, driven by a ruling logic of, quote, sustained institutional tendency to eliminate the indigenous population. Settler invasion is a structure, not an event. Examples of settler colonies include the United States, Canada, Australia, South Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, and Israel. The creation of each of these states was predicated upon the displacement and removal of long-standing native communities that existed within the borders of the nation states. Because Africans were, formally, were forcibly removed from the continent and trafficked to the United States and did not largely participate in the European process of domination, black people cannot be considered as settlers in the United States. Though we may participate in ongoing settler processes and benefit from the elimination of indigenous people and the expropriation of their land, we are not settlers. But championing the creation of a black majoritarian nation state where the fate of indigenous people is ambiguous at best is an idea that is rooted in settler logic. Is settler adjacency what a truly intersectional framework and uh, multifaceted approach to black liberation entails? If we use the creation of the State of Israel as an example, the ultimate reparation for historical violence is the opportunity to become a colonizer and gain proximity to, or entrance into, whiteness. Although popularly positioned as a kind of reparation for the mass murder of millions of Jewish people in the German Holocaust, the creation of Israel was an act of European anti-Semitism in the eyes of some, including Israeli scholar Ilan Pape, and obviously us, as well. The establishment of a Jewish homeland meant that antagonistic Western governments, states, states such as the United States and Allied powers that were well aware of the genocidal violence of Hitler's final solution, would not have to receive as many Jewish refugees. Mirroring this in the United States, white supremacists have historically supported the separatist politics of the Nation of Islam. They have seen black separatism as analogous to white nationalist self-determining politics of the, of the white majoritarian United States. Of course, these logics of racial self-determination do not operate the same in reverse. Their endorsement of black separatism is not support for black liberation, but rather an understanding that the self-segregation of the black community means less labor will be needed to remove racial impurity in the actualization of their fully white um, ethnostate. Richard Spencer recently articulated his identity as a self-proclaimed white Zionist, stating, I want us to have a secure homeland for us, for us and ourselves, just like you want a secure homeland in Israel. This represents the shared logics of colonization. See also, for example, the way that the white Ashkenazi Jewish minority comprise Israel's power structure, and an ideological alignment between Zionism and American white nationalism. Israeli state politics revolve ultimately around the removal and subjugation of the Palestinian people, beginning with the Nakba. The continuation of settler colonial development in Israel translated into land expropriation, housing demolition, constructions of settlements, ghettoization, and disproportionate state violence against Palestinians. Robin D.G. Kelly describes the ways in which this liberatory thought is not only a narrative of slavery, emancipation, and renewal, but with a language to critique America's racist state since the biblical Israel represented a new beginning. Unfortunately, though, 
Much of black Zionist thought recreates the logic of settler colonial entitlements rather than building an incisive and critical foundation upon which to critique settler colonialism and build and repair Afro-diasporic relationships outside of that model. If land-based reparations were to be actualized for black people in the United States, models for land-based liberation that are not both mindful and critical of settler colonialism would perpetuate the expropriation of land from indigenous communities still fighting to assert their sovereignty. Black American land politics cannot simply be built on top of centuries-old exterminatory settler logics of indigenous removal and genocide. Rather, the actualization of truly liberated land can only come about through uh, dialogue and co-conspiratorial work with Native communities and a shared understanding of land use outside of capitalistic models of ownership. And I think when it comes to land and kind of talking about Israel, um, I don't think that too many illustrations are more vivid than the kind of spectacle around the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. And there was something really interesting um, in watching the kind of shit show that was the ceremony and the kind of juxtaposition of that celebration with the like really brutal suppression of Palestinian protest. It was really interesting to see uh, Jewish clergy and to see the the you know Netanyahu at all embracing these American clergymen who like weeks and months and years before were talking about how Jews would all be condemned to hell because there were these heathen people who won't accept God and Jesus in their hearts and whatever the fuck. And it was really interesting to see the nature of that strategic alliance of the ways that even in the United States that um, Jewish people who are ra uh, racialized as white despite the fact that like Jewishness is not like white white it's this like weird flirtation with whiteness um, it was really interesting to see this particular investment in coloniality despite the fact that when the hammer comes down the white nationalists are going to come after even white Jews as well and you know we saw shortly after the election, we saw the swastikas being drawn in these Jewish cemeteries. We saw all of these anti-Semitic slurs being shouted and um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the kind of the kind of racial the kind of racial rhetorics and violence that the state of Israel is willing to in, endure in order to further this material politic of colonialism, of genocide against the Palestinian people. Um, and it's all being paid for with our tax money, which is great. It's super positive. Um, one of the other parts of understanding blackness and understanding the black position within white supremacy is understanding the ways in which whiteness constructed gender for black people. Um, Patricia Hill Collins does really good work about looking at the way that Africanness as this like barely supra animal condition necessarily meant and entailed this like hypersexuality, this distance from the real womanhood, which is kind of the cis hetero white womanhood. Um, and we, in the way that we're understanding anti blackness and we're understanding gender, um, I think we both are very adamant about understanding transmisogyny as the thing that is at the root of patriarchal enforcement of gender. Um, because transmisogyny is ultimately about the misgendering of trans women, and so it's about the kind of reinscription of what a correct manhood is about. 
Um, and we'll get into, we'll dig into that um, right now. <laughs> it is not sufficient to simply, oh sorry, page 68. <laughs> it is not sufficient to simply center blackness in our, um, in our understanding of resistance to subjugation. We must also explicitly name different gendered and sexual identities within blackness. Any truly liberatory, po oh sorry, so this is within the politic, or within the chapter about self-defense because we are trying to have this understanding of what, or, and, and push back against what constitutes innocence. Um, and we're kind of trying to under, we're trying to articulate that through these structures of gender, um, gender is constructed in such a way that makes all of these different gendered identities within blackness further and further and further and further away from white womanhood, which is held as the kind of beacon of the ultimate innocence. So, um, any truly liberatory politic must speak to the unique needs and vulnerability of black women and girls, particularly black queer and transgender women and girls. There are ongoing murders of black trans women across the country and trans women around the world because women's safety is a non-priority of the state and because patriarchal gender structures are ultimately grounded in trans misogyny. Um, and so the footnote that we have here says, we understand patriarchy is ultimately revolving around trans misogyny because through the deliberate misgendering of trans women and the invalidation of their womanhood, trans misogyny serves as a correction for manhood and masculinity. Through this violent structural understanding, trans women are perceived through violent tropes, which ultimately justifies the violence and exclusion they experience. In, for example, trans-exclusionary feminist spaces that perceive trans women as somehow appropriating or attempting to enter spaces that violate real women. I don't know how much y'all were following what was happening at London Pride, but that shit basically got hijacked by a bunch of lesbians who were insistent um, that trans women were not women, even though like they are women, and also like most trans women I know are super gay um, and like lesbians, so it's just like I'm confused. What is the truth? Um, not that. Anyway, <laughs> black women are also being hunted, but this hunting season, unlike the open season on black men, is grossly underaddressed because of the frequent degendering of anti-racist politics, the invisibilization of black women through diversity language like women and people of color that overlooks the intersections of race and gender, the erasure of black women within women of color, and understandings of how state violence against black people focuses on the humiliation and emasculation and almost sole targeting of cisgender black men. A politic of self-defense cannot ignore the intersections of white supremacist state violence and its manifestations of intra-communal violence against black women, as well as other members of the black community who are marginalized beyond their blackness. Black feminism says that the forces of sexism and misogyny, classism, and racism are inextricably linked in a mutually constitutive web of oppressions and domination. Within this tradition, of course, is Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality, building from the intellectual legacy of black lesbian feminists and even 19th century black feminist works such as writings by Anna Julia Cooper. Black feminism, too, grounds political understandings and anti-capitalist critiques in embodied knowledge and lived experience, and it also has the potential to present non-essentialized and non-biologized critiques of the position of black womanhood within history, a kind of useful historical revisionism highlighting racial capitalism's violence against black women and black nationalism's frequent exclusion of them. 
Black feminism responds to the racist exclusion of black women from women's issues. Safety, deservedness, agency and autonomy, and class depression. Understanding black women's subjugation by the state means understanding race and gendered labor extraction, and black feminism is useful for understanding the functioning of capitalism and for undermining the legitimacy of this anti-black settler state. Understanding black women's subjugation means understanding the ways that black women's labor was central to the development of the capitalist state and the American slaveocracy. Sarah Haley's No Mercy Here narrates how gendered anti-blackness formed the cornerstone of Jim Crow modernity, which then paved the way for the contemporary system of mass incarceration we have today. Haley's book compares the hyper-imprisonability of black women's gender deviance and the redeemability of white femininity and shows how these constructs were made material through judicial sentencing that enforced black women's subjection. Black women were frequently understood to be as strong as men and were frequently used for manual labor in the fields, whereas white women were only employed in fields as punishment for particularly bad behavior. Haley writes that in 1893, black men were 1.4 times more likely than white men to be arrested in Atlanta, while black women were 6.4 times more likely than white women to be arrested. That year, black male youth were three times more likely to be arrested than young white males, while young black girls were 19 times more likely to be arrested than their white female counterparts. The normativity and virtuosity of white women is made concrete through the deliberate singling out and punishment of black women and girls. It is through the tripled labor, the domestic, industrial, and sexual labor, um, and the male approximate punishment of the chain gang that black women were further and further excluded from womanhood. White women ultimately became exempted from chain gang labor, the only demographic to be protected from carceral punishment in this way, codifying a race-gender structure revolving around the protection of white womanhood and rooted in anti-black criminalizations. So when we look at contemporary anti-racist politics, black humanity and personhood continue to be filtered and evaluated through the white liberal imagination. In Against Innocence, Race, Gender, and the Politic of Safety, Jackie Wang asserts a frame for understanding black personhood and victimization. Also, if you have never read anything by Jackie Wang, you need to like go and like go read Jackie Wang very fast. She just put this book out called Carceral Capitalism, and Against Innocence is in there as are like a whole bunch of other fantastic essays, and I'm personally very inspired by her work. Um, a notion of innocence is a precondition for launching anti-racist support campaigns, she says, and such campaigns only arise when black people are able to pass tests of moral purity. So we can, for example, largely agree that Tamir Rice was egregiously victimized because he was a child. The outpouring of empathy was due to his youth, as was the corroboration of his claim to innocence via surveillance footage. The same with Ayanna Stanley Jones. But Mike Brown failed the test because he may have committed strong-arm robbery, despite robbery not being a capital offense. And Darren Wilson's testimony added to the process of what Frank B. Wilderson III refers to as niggerization. And niggerization, described by Cornell West, is neither simply the dishonoring and devaluing of black people, nor solely the economic exploitation and political disenfranchisement of them. It is the wholesale attempt to impede democratization, to turn potential citizens into intimidated, fearful, and helpless subjects. 
Similarly, we did not see an outpouring of empathy and support for Cece McDonald, a black trans woman who was convicted of second-degree manslaughter after killing an attacker who violently confronted her with racist and transmisogynistic language and smashed a drink against her face, clearly is a case of self-defense. She accepted a plea bargain of 41 months in prison in June 2012 and served 19 months in two different men's facilities before being released in January 2014. Given the epidemic and assault and murder of black trans women, was her defensive violence not warranted? What makes her less innocent than, for example, Marissa Alexander, who fired a warning shot after her husband attacked and threatened to kill her? There is far more outcry about the gendered implications of women invoking stand-your-ground laws than the perfectly reasonable use of violence in response to the assault of a black trans woman, perhaps because, in the case of Alexander, white liberals were able to apply the carceral feminist logic of protecting the world from scary racialized men that sits at the root of so many implicitly racialized anti-domestic violence and intimate vi partner violence interventions. It's important for us to note our steadfast support of both women, and the contrast of their cases was not intended to indicate personal perception of one woman being more innocent or more deserving of support than the other, but rather the disparate nature of public solidarity given their specific contexts. Where so many anti-racist logics, even ones emerging from radical spaces, appeal to innocence, we continue to rely on the logics of the white imagination and draw upon exceptional cases to buttress our arguments. But ultimately, in doing so, we inadvertently affirm illegitimate modes of governance and social regulation in an ultimately illegitimate state. Reliance upon empathy fails to produce politics that unequivocally affirm black humanity. And in doling out our own judgments of innocence, we fail to articulate the state's relationship to and production of blackness. Innocence defenses can only be flawed because the disciplinary systems erected around us, the ghetto, the plantation, the, the prison, the colony, define us solely through our criminality, our deviance, and an ongoing existence as both capital and a heavily subsidized labor force for the state. The issue is not our ability to convincingly argue the innocence of brutalized and slain black individuals immortalized through hashtags. We occupy a criminal subject position that cannot be shifted by appeals to white emotion. The state does not simply produce anti-black systems, it is anti-blackness. Wang further discusses zones of intelligibility, spaces of excuse me, being and residing that are understandable to white people. Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, she writes, were both murdered in places intelligible to white imaginations, a gated community and a public transportation station, respectively. Still, violence has occurred in alternate universes, the slave ship, the hood, prisons, and anywhere in public except for at the hands of the state. What happens when blacks possess an unintelligible identity? We're forced to perform the dehumanizing mental gymnastics of appealing to white notions of innocence and perfect victimhood. Affirming the legitimacy of self-defense is a refusal to entertain the idea that black people have only a conditional right to life. It is the, um, the embrace of a legacy of community self-determination by any means necessary. And I think that for us is particularly poignant in this moment where we're being compelled to civility, right? Like we're not supposed to punch Nazis, which is stupid because World War II was like a whole Nazi punching war. Um, and when, well, you know, it's a whole other story. Um, it's a bullet's like an extension of a fist. Um, 
And, you know, when we're talking, at, when we're looking at the Democratic establishment's response to Maxine Waters, who's basically like, you know, if you want to shoot me, like, don't miss. They're like, no, like, we have to be civil and we have to, like, you know, but, like, how do you be civil to someone whose whole politic is, 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 is based upon um, your extermination, right, and, and attempting to deprive you of your right to life? Like, I remember I was invited to be on this panel with some person who I guess was like a highly stylized white nationalist um, and they're like yeah like we think that you'd be like a really good like contrast and like rebuttal to his politics and we think that you know you're intellectual blah 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 and I was like okay so no but um, I'm wondering how I'm supposed to have a conversation with him Right, and this is just beyond like me. Probably, I would just get so mad I would start crying, and like that would just be kind of embarrassing because like you can't let them see you sweat. But what what is what is this like shared foundation for a conversation? So it's like Richard Spencer published on his website a case for black genocide. Right. So if this is like where your politics are coming from, what is my responsibility to like convince you that like black genocide is bad? Like, it's absurd, right? But they were really, like, it would be, like, an intellectually engaging argument where, like, the intellectual engagement is basically me being, like, you don't have a right to exterminate a people, and the other guy's, like, nah, hold my beer, I totally do. And, and, I, and, it, and it was really interesting how they felt as though I had the capacity to do it or that we have the obligation to have to continue to do it and that while that genocidal structure is in motion, right? Like, we have black, the, like, black social death, we have black folks being murdered by the police, we have black people dying in poverty, we have black people dying in all of these spaces. Like, while this anti-black murder machine is in motion, we're supposed to be, like, calmly sitting in front of a classroom making impassioned arguments about why that's a bad thing. As though you're gonna change a Nazi's mind. And if you do, I guess, like, congratulations, but, like, that's not my job. Um, but this idea of civility in the face of this violence, this exterminatory violence, right, and they weaponized Martin Luther King, forgetting that he was assassinated by them, um, even as he was trying to do the nonviolent civil disobedience thing. Um, and as they beat us over the head with it in this moment, and they're talking about how Black Lives Matter needs to be more like Dr. King. If you look at the polls from the 1950s and 60s when Dr. King was doing his work, white people were saying the same shit about Dr. King's super respectable politic of civil disobedience um, that they're saying about Black Lives Matter, that it's too disruptive, that it's too communistic, that it's too whatever. Um, hold on, hold on. And so in this... Right. So in this in this idea that there is a civil way of of demanding that we have a right to not be the victims of genocide, which like saying that out loud is kind of like a weird absurdity to me. Um, and in saying that like articulating it in that way isn't good because they're gonna still shoot you in saying that like armed defense is too alienating and you're gonna like alienate your allies. Um, they're basically saying that 
we're going to kill you and you're going to die quietly and be quiet about it. And there's no correct way to articulate black self-determination. There's no correct way for us to be able to appeal to our own humanity. So um, uh, Kwame Ture, you know, made the quote that's like, um, nonviolence and civil disobedience only work if your oppressor or your opponent has a conscience. And our responsibility as black people is not to like help cultivate this conscience out of this, or coax it out of a structure that we were never intended to become a part of, right? And so the question becomes, what do we do? And my answer is, y'all can do whatever the fuck you want to do. Um, I think electoralism has its place to some extent, um, but then also capacity building within communities and, and everything else that you need to do in order to do it um, also has its place. And we also have a, a, a chapter about, about guns and about self-defense because I think William and I are both of the mind that the ways that we talk about gun control is just fundamentally wrong. Um, that it's not so simple as to reduce it to either being pro-gun control or like anti-gun control. And like for the record, like I am not for gun control. Um, I don't necessarily think that you need like armor-piercing firearms because are you gonna what, go hunting with that? Are you gonna try to shoot like a a robber that's in your house with like an anti-tank weapon. Um, but I also happen to know that the only time that gun control has ever been legislated in the United States was when black folks were um, exercising their Second Amendment rights. Um, and Ronald Reagan was like, oh my God. And all the California legislators were like, oh my God, when the Panthers showed up to Sacramento with automatic weapons. Um, but in having this conversation about gun control, we don't have this conversation around how it's rooted in racial criminalization. We don't have this conversation about the fact that violence against, or violence that is being waged by white people is this kind of pathological violence that is ingrained within the nation state and not this kind of anomalous acts of violence that keep happening every other day for the past couple of hundred years. Like, that's a big pack of lone wolves. Um, and so the conversation that we're not having is about the kind of the, the DNA of American violence, the DNA of racial terrorism, um, and it's it's not so simple as get rid of all the guns because then how are we going to defend ourselves from the state? Um, which I, is a spicy take, I guess, or whatever, but some people think that you don't need to do that, but I think we need to do that. And I also happen to know that like, if we look at the history of Southern resistance, um, the only thing that stood often um, between black families literally being murdered by the Klan is the Klan's knowledge that you're coming to a house full of people that are armed. And it's like, yeah, you can try to do some silly shit, but they will shoot you back. Um, and I think that that's something for me that's important in, in, in having an understanding of like what is our deservingness to life, right? Because that's what I think is fundamentally at the core of, of these conversations of self-defense, of these conversations of civility. It's the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Schumer at all recognize what would happen if black folks were like, you know what? We're not gonna, we're not gonna do the civility thing anymore. We're not gonna do this voting thing anymore. We're gonna like, take what's ours, we're gonna do the thing, and 
it would not be pretty for a lot of people. And so I think they have this understanding of, of this complete disruption of order. Um, this quick, the, where order is, is, is a white supremacist order. It is a stifling order. It is a genocidal order. Um, and we can't legislate that kind of order out of existence when it is the nature of the country's existence. And the only way of kind of having an understanding of how to get rid of it is to kind of, I accidentally said this at a press conference recently, um, destroy America. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we don't talk about the body, right? You know, gotta keep a, gotta keep a low profile. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know, I've talked enough. My voice is kind of like, sounds like I need to clear my throat constantly, but I guess if folks have comments, questions, if folks have like read the book and are like, you're stupid, like, I, I don't like that. Well, please don't say that, it'll like hurt my feelings. But um, if you have questions, comments, thoughts, whatever, um, I would love to engage. I'm like very nice, I promise. I'm trying to encourage participation, yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so I'll take the first the first part. Do I think that black folks can get free within the system? I think it depends on how you define freedom, right? Um, we can, like, vote and, like, become president and, like, have all white parties and, like... <laughs> I mean, that's my freedom, right? Like, yacht parties and shit. Like, we have... <laughs> No, it's like we have we have access to mobility. We have access to capital in certain ways. We have access to 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 different positions and and markers that would indicate a certain kind of social progress. But that progress is and and the participation in capitalism is still a participation in anti-blackness. Um, like not to like guilt folks and be like good to vote of capitalism because like you can't and it's, it's all fucked up but like we're su we'd be succeeded succeeding in a system that was created because it's like you know um, uh, in, in thinking about like uh, what's her name Cheryl Harris wrote um, she talks about like race as being a property relation and so blackness was codified as property and whiteness is codified as ownership um, we're participating in an economic system that continues to codify blackness as property so to succeed in that means to kind of succeed like you can't become a billionaire ethically right you can't become like Jeff Bezos whatever the fuck his name is by like being like a good nice person and if you read all the gross the horrible shit that in Amazon factories like you understand how he is able to become a billionaire because people literally don't stop working um, and I guess if that's freedom the ability to become a part of capitalist classes, to become a part of this like bourgeoisie structure, 
I mean, I guess we can become free. Um, if we're defining freedom through like a maximization of like agency, um, then we can't do that within the kind of existing American nation state. We can't do that within racial capitalism. We can't do that while like border imperialism and like all of these structures of like militarism exist around the world, while these multinational corporations are um, extracting from the continent, sorry, Africa, and 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 transforming indigenous folks there into into captive labor forces, as opposed to allowing them to have agency over industry um, and exports and commerce and whatever in their own countries. Um, no. Short answer: No. <laughs> um, but I also am not going to pretend that I know what it looks like to be free. Um, I think. As with so many other things, the idea of freedom is something that I've really been able to come through soon, through negation, right? I know what freedom is not. Um, I don't know what it is, which I think speaks to a lot of like very sad things about how our imaginations are necessarily constrained um, by white supremacy, by racial capitalism, by all these gender structures, by all these impositions of thought and identity and ideology. Um, I just got off my exams where we were like reading all of this like neo-Marxism, so I'm just like bourgeoisie, like ideology, superstructure. Um, so sorry about the, <laughs> sorry about all the buzzwords. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not a super, pes or a super optimistic position, but I don't necessarily think that optimism is um, sustainable. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't really subscribe to Marxism in as much as Marx kind of predicted this like spontaneous revolution and evolution out of capitalism that would happen as in, in this like big nation state way that there would be this like proletariat revolution then we'd have this like dictatorship with the proles and then we'd be like have this like great international like stateless thing which like sounds super dope not exactly no it didn't um, but my kind of focus as a leftist is not so much thinking about progress and thinking about liberation on a nation state level um, as I guess like a materialist as an anarchist I'm really invested in harm reduction um, sometimes harm reduction looks like voting because in like local elections those are the folks that are allocating resources that kind of that often have like the most direct impact on people's living conditions and the most direct impact on people's capacities to have access to like to food to housing and to other like essential resources um, and harm reduction for me is important because if we're kind of like waiting for the spontaneous revolution and finally that moment comes, but people are continuing to die and finally we're just like, okay guys, like we're ready. We're gonna do it. Revolution's gonna happen and everybody's dead. Um, who are we fighting this revolution for? Um, and what is the function of this revolution in our imagination? If it's just this thing, we're kind of waiting for the perfect condition to happen. There will never be perfect condition for revolution. And so I'm really in, invested personally in um, kind of autonomy building. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in kind of 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be like dramatic, right? Um, in in the way that the I mean, I'm not going to call the Zapatistas dramatic. It was kind of dramatic when they like went to war against the Mexican government, but it, it, it in terms of like this huge like this huge kind of communal communalist like living project. Um, I'm interested in, for example, um, if there are food deserts or in, within this kind of structure of food apartheid, and one of the biggest reasons that folks aren't able to go get nutritious food is because folks can't necessarily afford the transportation to go to the places where there is fresh produce, like a carpooling system where like once or twice or three times a week, we get people and we drive them to the nearest place that has food that takes EBT. Um, also, if we're, if we're like trying to talk about nutrition and produce, like community gardens and like teaching people earth skills and teaching people how to have a relationship with food, to cultivate their own food. Because shit, when the revolution happens and our food distribution networks are all destroyed, we're going to have to learn how to do that shit anyway. Um, to learn how to do stuff with water, to learn how to do stuff with like constructing and maintaining um, housing spaces and squatting. So we're like not necessarily dependent upon these slumlords that are extracting these like increasing like extortionary um, rent prices, especially when I'm like thinking about housing in the Bay Area, um, which I'm just like, I live with like eight people because it's the only way that like my rent isn't just a, a kidney a month. Um, and so I'm really interested in kind of like small scale capacity um, because the other thing about, you know, doing this revolutionary thing is like when the state evaporates and, and the state is dismantled, there are a lot of things that the state provides that people need that we have to figure out how to replace. Um, and I think it's really ableist when it's just like, we're gonna destroy the state. And I was like, okay, cool. What about people who are on Medicare that like are undergoing dialysis? Like if the state is dismantled and we're not figuring out how to like replace this with services, it's a lot of people who are going to die very quickly. Um, and so, I think that we have to figure out these like kind of small projects and these small ways of, of, of having people understanding that like we do not need, we do need the state, but like we do not need the state. Like we can figure out ways of self-reliance, of capacity building, and, 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 and the political project that I envision is like how would we now create popular capacity and infrastructure as though we're anticipating the state's collapse next week? Like, what does it mean to envision new societies and materialize new societies in this moment um, as we're thinking about how we would replace certain kinds of, of, of state services? Um, obviously, I can't give someone dialysis, but we can, like, give people, like, food and stuff. And Sure. Well, I mean, if the inf tech infrastructure collapses, that might also be a good thing, but that's the whole other story. And um, are there any other questions? Okay, so there's... Okay. It's <laughs> so, like anarchy for teenagers? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. I'm a sociologist, like I'm not offended. Like it's <laughs> like it's fine.
Yeah. Oh, people, hell yeah. So, I stand super hard for Miriam Kabe. Um, she wrote the forward of the book, so, like, I'm not going to stand for someone and be, like, right in my book. Um, but I really appreciate her work because she makes abolition something that is both, like, this lofty ideal that we're, like, fighting for constantly, but also this thing that we do every day. Um, the way that she talks about care work um, and like prison, like prison defense work and, and talks about like reproductive labor and the kinds of like solidarity that is not as sexy as like chaining yourself to something and shooting at someone or whatever. Like she, she talks about this work in a way that's very approachable and very, and very kind of like mundane. But that makes the project so much more kind of inspiring in this way because you're able to kind of visualize the roots of the big thing in your kind of everyday relationships and interactions. Um, and so like her website, Prison Culture, just has so much writing on so many different aspects of abolition when it comes to prison, when it comes to like juvenile justice and figuring out ways of like engaging disciplinary structures that are not these like punitive structures um, I think like she should be like foundational on everything um, trying to think of like yeah I mean that's there's gotta um maybe that should be like a series of kids books like the only other thing for like anarchy that I know it's like there's this like children's series called rules are to be broken which is super cute um, I'm definitely giving that to my nephew and my brother's not going to be happy about it but I don't care um, yeah Miriam Kabe I'm like drawing a blank it's been a very busy past like week and a half and I'm just kind of like yeah her work I think should be fundamental to like every thing I would do that. I can. We can exchange information. Let's like. Uh, are you like a teacher? Mm hmm. Right. I got all my shit from Tumblr, to be honest, like, <laughs> yeah, I'd be, yeah, let's talk more about that, yeah, that'd be cool, I'm trying to do anarchies for the kids shit, so, what about it, you had a question as well? every fiber of my being and I think the way that I've seen like black women black femmes uh, push back against that um, and in seeing folks reaction to that 
really makes me realize that like we don't know how to give compliments or to apologize. Um, when you give someone a compliment and they're like, hey, like that's not a compliment, and they're like, it is though. <laughs> and you're like, but I don't like it. And they're like, but it's a compliment and I'm giving it to you. Um, it really kind of demonstrates, it demonstrates a particular kind of objectification, right? It demonstrates the purpose and the function of the creation of, of black womanhood um, as not a person, um, as not an individual that has agency, but as like a tool. Um, I remember like when that was that Alabama race or whatever and folks were like, black women saved us. I was just like, no, no, no. The funny thing about that is like, we're just trying to save ourselves. And because of the particular ways that our oppression materializes and because of the ways that we are often thinking in communal ways when we are trying to save ourselves, like y'all just having a benefit too. Um, so it's like, black women will save you by accident. Um, in trying to like run out of the burning house, we will accidentally get a hose and just extinguish the whole fire while we're at it. Um, and I think that there's something that's really horrible about placing such a massive burden um, for saving on people who are drowning, right? And are floundering in so many ways um, and are exhausted and there's no like offering of reciprocity. So there's this like, listen to black women and black women will save us. And I'm like, hey, like I'm a black woman. And they're like, no, don't talk like that though. Talk like this instead. And we'll listen to you there. Um, it's like, y'all don't really give a fuck about black women. You just appreciate the fact that we do all your dirty work for you. Um, and I yell about that on Twitter often. Often, often. I think like isn't like, couple of days ago I was yelling at someone and people were like, well, how are we supposed to compliment you and show that we care? And I was like, well, you could actually just not say anything and just like do the work and like support us materially and like talk about black women, like gendered violence against black women as it exists within this like structure of white supremacy and not just kind of singularly focus on like cis hetero black men. Like you can like not abuse us. And when we're talking about sexual violence, you cannot be like, well, You know, like, you know, there are, there are all kinds of, like, material ways that black women can be supported without kind of demanding that we sacrifice ourselves um, for some respectability politic, for some, I, whatever, I don't know, like, does it make you feel, I don't know, I'm just annoyed. I'm just like, stop. And this is why I really appreciate Maxine Waters, because she's just like, fuck you. Um basically like the Marshawn Lynch of Congress right now and just doing what she needs to do as she understands it to be important to kind of herself as a black woman and to black people. Obviously not to pretend that she's like banging the commie hammer like in Congress or anything, but I appreciate what she says and kind of what she represents um, in her refusal to be respectable. Um, and I found it really interesting, for example, when people were talking about Kamala Harris that way, and, you know, when there was that some hearing where someone was like, blah, 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 and she was like, actually, you can't talk to me like that. And everyone was like, wow, is this a savior? And, 
everyone in Northern California was like, no. Because, like, are you looking at the way that she is, like, taking money from these financial institutions? Like, she's a fed. Like, she's a prosecutor. And her whole job is to, like, put black people in prison. Um, like, what... How is this your... Sa like, like, how is this your savior? Like, I don't understand. So it's... It's a lot of like really unrealistic expectations that I think we would be much better off if we stopped even attempting to fulfill um, this. It's this idea. This kind of goes back to this idea of like perfect victimhood or innocence or whatever, and this performance of civility, this performance of upstanding citizenship and engagement. Um, and it's a game that we're never going to even be able to play, um, much less win. So um, stop saying black women will save us and like save your fucking self. And also us. Like, save us from yourselves. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, yeah. interesting we actually like kind of share a brain in this way like we we might articulate it differently but we like fundamentally like like share like the same framework and so I guess when I was saying like we have different ideas it's like I'm understanding these politics around land when for there's this piece that was in Afropunk like a year or two ago and this person was like I think that all member states of the African Union should give African Americans citizenship and land. And I was like, that sounds like a stupid idea. Um, and my orientation with like land politics are much more rooted on the continent because like my family is there. Um, because my family or my parents like grew up during a liberation war which was predominantly around kind of control of land and resources and so like I have I don't have a farm yet but am able to get farm land from the government like so I I'm accessing this land like in a very very different way than he is and his kind of relationship with land is this landlessness um, and placelessness, which scare quotes because black people aren't placeless, um, but this kind of like rootlessness of like the black American experience. And so it was really interesting to kind of get our heads together um, in, and also like it forced us to like get to know each other in these like super intimate ways um, and, and like put forth this idea through like a unified front, but like super disparately. So it's like the way that the book was kind of organized is like we really did the first chapter together because it was an expansion of the essay that we wrote. And then he really worked on the chapter about self-defense because like that's super his thing and I'm like super about land. And so that was really the chapter that I worked on. And we both went into each other's chapters and we're kind of like maybe take this out or maybe put this in um, and edited it, um, edited them. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really, and there was, yeah, at no point were we just, like, at any kind of fundamental odds 
Um, it might be like, maybe write it this way, or like, take this part of the idea out, because I don't know how much I support that part, but like, everything else is like, super solid. Um, but as far as like, co-creating goes, like, it was a very easy process. Well, maybe he'll say differently, but it was very easy for me. <laughs> and it was very painless for me, and it was very like, affirming, um, and, and kind of like, trying to offer something that is like generative even though it is mostly like everything sucks and here's why um yeah. it was a lot of fun to write when I wasn't crying about it and missing deadlines but got that whatever <laughs> are there any other questions yeah Zimbabwe I guess have you had the conversation with what is the conversation like when you're speaking about um, in her rights life? Like, you deserve to be not because of the So, what does that conversation look like with your your family? Like, um, did you go back to that? Um, what does that conversation look like? Is it like, did you actually, like, like, have your parents, have you spoken to your parents about, like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. And you become black in this way, sure. So, um, I'm actually, so, in talking about blackness, it's kind of interesting in talking about, like, continental identities. So it's like my parents were born in a settler colony where the kind of racial structure was enforced and created very similarly with the United States. So, like, maybe not black, but, like, African and native was, like, a thing that was very rigidly enforced. Um... And so in talking with my mom, my dad doesn't, he's kind of squirrely about it, but in talking with my mom, she was like, coming to the United States was really interesting because this was the first time that I'd ever met poor white people. Because basically, the white people that moved to Rhodesia were like the poor whites of England who had the opportunity to become like the big man in Africa. And then she came to the United States and she was just like, aren't y'all all supposed to be like winning? Like, <laughs> how is this a thing? And the way that she raised me, it was, um, my, both my parents raised me in this way that was really alienating, um, uh, which was really anti-black, um, which I think a lot of, like, black Americans already understand um, is a politic that a lot of Africans hold. Yes, but... I guess. 
I mean, you can be more generous about it than I am going to be and am. But it was this, it was very much this, like, when I was going to try to, like, be friends with the black kids, my mom was like, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, and, and not very subtly. Um, and so I think a really formative moment for me, this is going to sound super cliche, was when I read The New Jim Crow in high school. Um, I had read, like, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Like, I had read these different kind of civil rights things, but like reading the new Jim Crow, I was like, hold on mom, there are people who go to jail because there's a system that makes them go to jail? Like jail isn't just used for people who deserve to go to jail? And I was like, mind blown. And it sounds really kind of juvenile, but when you're taught that like you're a special black, when you're not like them, and the reason that they're like that and the reason that they've been this way for 400 years is because there's something about them that is like innately bad, but you've been able to make it in 30 years because you're good, right? There's something that's unique about you. So I read The New Jim Crow and I was like, yo, holy shit, America is bad. Um, I was living, I, I grew up in Missouri, so there was also like not really black folks to be like, no shit, it's bad, you idiot. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so I read the new Jim Crow and I came back to my mom. I was in high school and I was just like, yo, this is wild. Y'all lied to me. Like, and she's like, I just, I don't think it's appropriate to like generalize based on a few isolated incidents. And I was like, she literally did a survey of like 300 years worth of like jurisprudence. This is like not a few isolated incidents. This is like every major court case in like American history. And she was like, oh. I think you might be overreacting a bit. So it just so happens that the person that I grew up with three houses down is Carol Anderson, who's this like really incredible um, African-American studies scholar. Um, and so I like called her on the phone like crying. And I was like, Carol, I need you to convince my mom that white supremacy is real. And I need, I just, I need some help because she doesn't believe me. And so my, she calls my mom and she's like, yeah, you know, there's the Southern strategy, there's this, and everything I had said. And I was just like, <laughs> crushing it. And then she's like, you should actually read a book called The New Jim Crow. Like, it's really good. And, so, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. So as I got older, and I, you know, did a master's degree, and I'm, like, doing a PhD now, um, and I'm still yelling about the same shit that I was yelling about when I was 15, but I just, like, have some degrees under my belt. Um, it's been really interesting to see my parents get radicalized. Um, my dad is now a prison abolitionist, apparently. I was like, he said that, he was like, as an abolitionist. I was like, um, is he a what? <laughs> a whomst? Like, like, when did this happen? And my mom is, like, out here, like, quoting Asada Shakur and talking about, I will not have my labor expropriated to her boss. And I was like, I am not taking credit for that. Like, like, go off, but, like, whoa. Um, and it's been really interesting because I think in a lot of ways, my parents were trying to protect me from the kinds of things that they endured. And I think, hope, I think they hoped that coming to America, they would not... I mean, it's not just the class thing, right? They would, that I would, that my brother and I would not have to experience the same kind of humiliations that they experienced when they were in Rhodesia. Um, and so after the election, you know, my mom has really been going through it because there's so much about Donald Trump that reminds her of Ian Smith. Um, there's so much about, like, she lived in an internment camp during the war. And so there's so much about this, like, immigration detention space that reminds her of what she lived in. And, and I think... 
there was something that she told me and she was like, you know, as, 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 as horrible as this moment is, there's like something that's really kind of freeing and liberating at the same time. Um, and in kind of uncovering this veneer of like civility and democracy, like I have been able to like say the things and, and, and start to kind of work my way through and articulate these traumas that I experienced such a long time ago. And um, I'm actually writing a piece about her kind of immigrant story and the denaturalization policy politics, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks, so you know, keep your eyes open. But it's it's been like a slow process, and I think that part of it has just been the fact that they have had to start interacting with the work that I do, and um, and to really confront the kinds of questions that I'm asking. Um, and I don't let them not ask those questions of themselves. When it comes to folks back home in Zimbabwe, like that's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult sometimes. I think that often a lot of black folks in America sometimes have have these ideas about what it means to go home and what it means to be embraced um, by people at home because of these stories that they hear from like Ghana and Cameroon and, and people who are like, welcome home, I like stolen, whatever. And I'm just like, folks in Zimbabwe, a lot of them like really don't give a shit. Like there's, there, it's not a part of this like forced diaspora. So there's not the same kind of like institutional, cultural, material, whatever memory of extraction. Um, we also have had like a dictator for like 37 years. So folks are just most, a lot are just kind of trying to eat. <laughs> and like, so it's, and so I'm, I'm obviously not gonna, I won't homogenize like every opinion in Zimbabwe because like Pan-Africanism is still a thing that is like going strong on the continent. Um, but I think that often something that's really hard in trying to talk about these Afro-Diasporic relationships is I think that sometimes we think that African folks, actually I don't want to say that because I don't, but it's, I, think, I think that there's this like idea that the con folks on the continent care a lot more about folks here than they actually do, um, which is like a really fucked up pill to swallow. Um, but I also think that part of that comes from this idea that blackness revolves around black Americanness, which is like completely false and gross and messy. Um, so it's it's a lot going on, and it's it's like in my family, like my uncle, I learned my poli my radical politics from him. He's an ex guerrilla, like a Maoist. No, he lives in Zimbabwe. Um, but like that's how I was radicalized kind of first through this like, like armed struggle is like the struggle and I was like fuck yeah it's the struggle um, and I think he was part of that generation of that like old not old but this just kind of like this old guard vanguard left um, that was very heavy in its internationalism um, and that's an element, I think, of, of black leftism, of leftism in general, that's kind of lacking a, a, an internationalism beyond objectification, beyond just being like, well, Syria and Yemen and the Congo, but it's not like a, a protracted, like real engagement and a real attempt to understand like what is AFRICOM looking like in African communities across the continent. Like, it's not just these bases. Like, how are people interacting with these forces? Like, what, how is it disrupting local economies? How is it, in, you know, da -da -da -da. Um, it's a big fucking continent, and there's a lot of different interests, and they're often, like, not even complementary within a nation state. Um, 
and I think that like there are a lot of realities that I don't think that we're grappling with enough um, but it's also like where do you start you know so it's it's hard and sometimes I hear conversations and I'm just like yo like that's it's like pretty horrible like I don't think you can but then I also hear that here so it's like everybody's wrong and everybody's right um right okay uh two more questions if there are two more questions Okay, well, if not, thank you for coming to this reading today. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.